Welcome to the Invino Fab podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Patrice. Invino Fabulum means in wine story. And there are so many tales that need to be told about women from all walks of life and their communities, paired with wine, of course. The Invino Fab pod is a place to learn and a space to share stories about work, interests, passion projects, issues, and random wine facts. On this episode of Invino Fab, I'm so happy to welcome Michelle Miller. Dr. Miller is the author of Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology, and she serves as a professor of psychological sciences at Northern Arizona University. Michelle works with faculty at NAU and other institutions to improve their teaching practices and course designs. With an emphasis on evidence-based practices and innovative use of educational technology, I have no doubt you'll really appreciate the conversation we have around how to get online in a hurry and remote experiences. In all honesty, this episode was recorded back in April, and this was the start of the pandemic, and COVID-19 impacted a lot of campuses in higher ed and how we teach and learn remotely. We talk about some things related to the pandemic and how we're coping and dealing, and sadly, this will still resonate with you, and this conversation is very real and relevant, so I'm really appreciative that Michelle was able to come on the podcast earlier, and even though I slacked in to get to produce it right away, I could still share this really great conversation we had today. I have no doubt you're going to learn a little bit about some advice, um, some things that we're reading and learning about, and really how we're coping with being productive or not during this pandemic. Enjoy the show. Well, welcome to the InVinoFab podcast, Michelle. We're so glad you could join us today for a conversation. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. I, I love the podcast. Cool. Uh, well, I've just read your bio, and I wasn't sure if there's something in there that you probably don't include about you, uh, personally or professionally, that is a little-known fact for our listeners. Uh, they, they might want to know more about you. Well, I think I'll come right out and just completely say about myself that I'm a, a kind of a, a hobby junkie. Um, I, I, I'd love to do a lot of things outside of, of work, and I think in that way, just kind of bucking a little bit of the, the culture of um, not just academia, where I, I think we make a, a pretty big <laughs> a pretty big deal out of uh, exclusive hyper-focus on work and things like that, um, but also the culture of working motherhood in this country, uh, which is, you know, you're either all on for your kids all the time or you're all on for work all the time and, and so on. So I, I do have I'll have lots of interests outside of, of work. Uh, like probably everybody else, I don't get to spend all the time that I would like to on them, and I'm not claiming to be uh, really um, really good at any of them, but <laughs> <laughs> well, with, with maybe one exception. So, I mean, some of the things that um, I do, I am a, a passionate reader of, of nonfiction, and I have been since I was really really young. I love memoir. I love any kind of a book that's about productivity or uh, books about writing, uh, which are a great substitute for actual writing, I find, is reading yet another <laughs> book about how to write and be a productive writer. Um, but, you know, I learned, I live with that struggle like we all do. Um, so I, I do just 
really love to, to, to have a couple books in the hopper at any time, even outside of the workbooks that we read. I, I actually don't watch a ton of TV, but when I do, I love to have a project in, in my lap. So I've got, uh, you know, the sweaters, the scarves and, and things like that. So I love to knit. Uh, and if anybody out there is on Ravelry, um, you should, I don't know, friend me or we should uh, check each other's profiles out. So I love Ravelry. I've been on it for a long time. Um, Can you explain so, to our listeners what Ravelry is? Oh, yes. I should l- explain to listeners what Ravelry is. So Ravelry is this amazing, um, it, it, it's sort of, it, it, everybody tries to explain it through analogies these days. It kind of predates the big explosion of Facebook and other really mainstream social media. But it's sort of a combination social media and database for knitters and crafters. And it's it's amazing what this has done to really um, revitalize fiber crafting. So it's a, I guess on the face of it, it's a site for knitters and crocheters and people who do other things uh, involving fiber like spinning. Um, but it is, as I said, this amazing community and project that started out from a very, very bare bones idea years ago um, and just exploded into millions of users, believe it or not. So, so uh, yeah, I, I, I love being on Ravelry. You are a true hobbyist. I am impressed by that list. I do want to make note of when we are recording. We are talking during beginning of April. And uh, we are both in the U.S. Um, and around the world, many people are not doing much uh, far from home. So I guess this is the time to pick up some hobbies that you've mentioned that are indoors or around your house more so because we can't get out to uh, some of the great outdoors or the gyms or other things that we are social. So I'm um, hearing about your social online crafty knitting self uh, seems like a good area or source of uh, to go to now, at least while we're dealing with uh, COVID-19, is, have you picked anything back up and said, I guess I'm going to work on this again or try this again? Well, uh, I I think so. Now, I, I think um, we, we also maybe can allude to something I think a lot of us are experiencing, um, especially those of us who are kind of time and productivity nerds like myself. Um, it, so I think a lot of us in this space definitely are. Um, there's just this funny paradoxical thing going on. You know, on the one hand, it's like, oh, all the time I'm home. I, you know, we're not commuting. We're not, uh, you know, no, no judgment here, but I, I'll count myself as our, 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 personal, you know, things like getting, getting showered and, and doing stuff like that, maybe spending a little less time on it. Um, and yet, where does the time go? So, you know, I, I, we can't say, oh, you know, I have all this wonderful time on my hands, because I, I don't, especially those of us who are working in anything relating to pedagogy or educational technology right now, are we're, we're needed. It's all hands on deck. But yeah, that said, I did... Um, make a, a last ditch, probably last minute um, trip to the yarn store as many of us did to lay in a new project. So, you know, even if I can only spend 20 minutes on it every few days, that's been important to have that underway. I think I did need that to establish that. And uh, I, I went on a huge tear as far as downloading things to the Kindle as well. But, but yeah, that's, that's what we're doing. And um, people are, uh, of course, showcasing a lot of projects and uh, showing a lot of their, uh, you know, their yarn, their works in progress um, online right now too. And and it is one of those interesting interplays of the the really really hands on 
and um, what what technology can do to actually move that forward, not get in the way of that. I think that you make a good point. And um, I too, you actually sound more motivated than I am about productivity and time management. It's, it's a weird sense of time. Like you're right, we have more, but I, I feel like myself, I feel 50% less productive. And even though you and I are both well-versed in teaching and learning online, um, you are an academic, your field is in psychology, but you've worked with learners from first year experience on, and I've, I'm in the same kind of instructional design, learning design area. I feel like I'm just not my 100% self these days. And I don't know how you're feeling because I feel like a lot of our colleagues think they should be more productive, but I'm not. Uh, I, I feel like I can't move forward a little bit because there's an unknownness of what's going on around now. And I don't know what you're, how you frames that for yourself or is there something you've done to kind of, I guess, motivate yourself? So I'm looking really for advice, Michelle. That's really good. <laughs> oh, so. oh, me too. Maybe we can go out and download a few more books about productivity. <laughs> <laughs> Will that help? Like, I don't know, because I feel like we put a lot of pressure on ourselves more. You're right, with whether it's our spare time or our work time, but this is just a strange time. And how do we, how do we, you know, be kind to ourselves during this time? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that is, I think you've just absolutely put your uh, finger on that mental state that we, that we do find ourselves in. Um, I, I've just got started to think of it as some kind of a multiplier, you know, we need to say, well, you know, typically if I was going to work X number of hours in a day, (laughs) multiply that, you know, working at home under these circumstances, I mean, working, uh, the way you feel, I think after working six hours at home is the way that you would feel after working 12 hours under, you know, more typical circumstances. And, you know, and uh, I think as, as a lot of us feel like it, it's not the working at home thing. I mean, especially we academics, we, we love remote, remote work. We thrive on it. Many of us do field work around the, the world or, you know, we pick up and we go somewhere for sabbatical or we just work out of our beloved home office spaces all summer, which is all I do. And it, it has been really, it's been really interesting to try to reflect and say, what is going on with, with me? And I, you know, and we start there too. We think, Oh, it's me. (laughs) What, what is my problem that, uh, even with all this time, which should in theory be back in my schedule, even though I like working on many of us are, are really, really introverted. So it's like, yeah, this, this is ideal. We, we should be having a great time. And we don't feel that. (laughs) And I do think there's, there's definitely, um, there's a role of the worry. Um, I mean, who, who doesn't at this point have partner, family member, colleague, um, you know, child, children who we are deeply, deeply concerned about and concerned about the the future that the news is (laughs) unbelievably difficult to process. Um, I think that 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 creates a drain. And I'll I'll borrow a little bit of something too from my cognitive psychology uh, repertoire here. I mean, it may be a bit of a stretch, but it makes me think of some of the work out there on uh, how anxieties actually drain off our cognitive capacities. And um, I mean, like we, we know, for example, from some of the older studies on people with math anxiety, 
that, you know, that we think of that as an emotional problem and not a cognitive problem, like, you know, thinking and emotions are separate, but that's, that's a place where they come together because all that back chatter of like, oh, I hate math. I'm not good at math. I feel pressured. You know, I'll never get this right. I'll never pass this class. All that, you know, going on in the background sucks out of your working memory capacity, which makes it a self-fulfilling prophecy that we can't process and, and we don't do well. So I think there's probably some kind of a dynamic which some more accomplished cognitive psychologists than myself should untangle. But all of that, even though you may not be conscious of it, I think it's like a virus, right, that runs in the background. You know how it is when your computer's like getting slower and slower and slower. It's, and it's because this extraneous stuff is running. So that's, that's a thought on that. Hey, you're helping me already. So it's not me. It's my head. That's <laughs> no, and I, and I bring it up because uh, for our listeners, Michelle wrote this book about four years ago that came out, um, Minds Online. And I have been thinking about that because it's, it does draw from your work as an instructor, a cognitive psychologist, scientist. And I do think that what you're saying is we have an overload right now. And it's really hard to think about like, how can I break that? Or is there ways that I could I don't know, is there any actionable items I could do to kind of tear that down or restart, I guess, reboot to clear out that uh, computer virus in my head so I can kind of reframe and restart? Or what are some suggestions that, you know, I know that you've put some in your book, but you're like, actually, I think it's relevant for now because our minds are online, whether they're learning, working, leisure, because uh, we don't know what else to do. And we're sheltering in place. We're going to um, the digital sphere, but we can't let ourselves overload. So what do you suggest for people and even your students that you, and your colleagues that you talk with? Wow. Well, and I think, you know, maybe as, as teaching and learning people, we can, you know, I think a good um, kind of place to start is to say, well, what would I say to students? You know, I think those of us in this space, we've got almost inexhaustible wells of, of compassion and insight for our students. And then when it comes to ourselves, you know, it's all, why can't I do this? <laughs> why, why didn't I finish five book chapters and clean the whole house top to bottom uh, in one day? Uh, and we're going there, right? That's where your mind goes. Right. Um, what would we say to students? I, I would start to say... Um, yeah, first of all, you're not alone, right? And and that's where so much of the, you know, to pull in another theme, um, you know, the mindset and uh, what we call lay theories of success, that's a huge thing in um, higher education and pedagogy circles right now. This idea of really looking at some of students' underlying assumptions about who, you know, who's successful in different environments. And, and we find that those are really, really powerful. And they're also changeable, which is really encouraging. You know, so much in psychology, we're like, well, we found this, you know, thought process that's really messing us up. What do you do about it? Well, I don't know. Um, but I, I would say to students, well, all right, you, you're not the only one who struggles with this. The struggle is, is natural and it's normal. And, um, yeah, I think that that can cause us to kind of have a more detached and optimistic um, view of it. Mm -hmm. I think there's that. Um, I think, too, you know, one of the really exciting areas where I see psychology 
out there really, you know, doing what I, I have always wanted psychology to do is really help people live their lives better. Um, you see this playing out in some of the more evidence-based, yeah, productivity things. Um, they're not all written by psychologists, but some but things like uh, there's a book called Atomic Habits, which mm. is uh, on its way to becoming a, a real classic. And it and it's great. It, it just pulls, you know, it's pulling straight psychology 101 stuff, but applying it. So some of that can be helpful too, to at least in the moment, help us feel a little bit more, more focused. So things like the, um, like if people are familiar with the Pomodoro technique, you set a timer and, you know, classically you set it for 25 minutes, but the, you know, the actual time, frame is probably not that important. But the idea of like, okay, here's a limited area where I'm going to focus for X amount of time, and I'm going to get in the habit of doing that. So it's not a struggle every single time that I say, I just, you know, pick something and, and go with it for, you can do it for 25 minutes, you can do that. And then seeing, um, seeing that as well. And then I guess being very reflective for ourselves of what makes us feel better, what makes us feel worse. And this is so tough because we are online. We, we have to be on, online. There's no way to just, you know, even if we could do a digital detox before, you can't really do it now. But really being honest with ourselves about, okay, that scroll through Twitter news, did that make me feel better? Did it make it feel, me feel worse? Um, that's what psychologists do, or we, we don't really care about what we should, you know, be doing. We're, we're empirical. We say, all right, where was my mood here? And where was my mood there? What, what helps? And making those little incremental changes that move us in a, a happier, more productive direction. So that's, that's where I'd start. What do you think? I think you're right. Uh, you mentioned some good advice. I think Carol Dweck's book on mindset, um, I think we talked about this on the podcast before, is great. Atomic Habits. I forgot about that book. It is a helpful little tricks and hacks. Like I think about like what are the three things I'm going to work on each day. And so instead of people having that long list of we're going to get this all done, like pick three things. And one could be like a simple house activity like laundry. <laughs> one could be like meetings you have to go to, like that you are on your schedule. And the third one of something you're going to get accomplished maybe. Um, and I like that idea of reflection. So I, I've been trying to be more cognizant to use um, a, paper, a paper journal that I've used before. Um, just kind of write down like, what did I do this day? What held me back? And you, you make a good point. Like, did I scroll through Twitter or Instagram? Was that helpful for me? Should I do something else instead? I think that's a great point. I appreciate those suggestions, Michelle, because you've, you've done well to suggest to your learners, but you've also offered, like I read your article earlier uh, back in March when we knew that things were going to shift to continuity and learning and teaching, you wrote a really helpful piece to just let instructors know uh, we're going to be moving online. It's going to get strange and weird, but here are some ways you can do it quickly. If you have to uh, bring your courses, your teaching and learning into the digital realm and you offer some great advice for, you know, preparing assignments and getting people to think about how they give feedback. Um, you had to do this yourself, I am sure, because not all of your courses are online. So how did it go? How's it going? What was the feedback on that? Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, I was, uh, the feedback has been really good. Um, you know, not necessarily so much the traditional, like, well, I read your article and I like, you know, <laughs> point X, Y, and Z. And this was a timely piece. It went up in the, yeah, the Chronicle of Higher Education, which, you know, is the, the publication that many of us really look to, um, for up-to-date stuff and, and for leadership in, in higher education related topics. So 
Um, and there's not a like, let's kind of write a draft and rework it and get reviewer A and reviewer B and see what they think about it because they're always so helpful. Um, <laughs> sorry, a little dig at reviewer B because I, I have a bone pick. It's always that reviewer B. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, no, so we we put it together, and I say we because really, you know, the editorial staff at a publication like that are unsung, and and as are all you know academic publishers and editors out there, uh, they they piece together and help clarify so much. So so yeah, it, it's maybe has my name on it, but it's it's got the the thoughts and the input of, of quite a few of their their great staff. Um, so the feedback has been good, and I think really the best feedback, though, that there is, is that it's been reposted so many times on teaching and learning center websites. And I think, I mean, what I was trying to do, you know, of course, speak very honestly and directly faculty member to faculty member right. um, with, you know, as few kind of barriers and jargon as, as possible. Um, but I, you know, what I was trying to do with this as well is both signal boost, but also balance out um, the much more detailed guides that are out there, yeah. which are really, really great and good, you know, to have a page of like, here's 50 things you can do to liven up, you know, to make great videos and have you thought of this tool? And, you know, how about that tool? Um, to also say, okay, where is your syllabus? <laughs> what what is due next? And you know, maybe in that way, I am drawing on my own kind of that that productivity. Oh my gosh, I have to sit down and make a list because that's the only way I can kind of function in in my world is to have a have a game plan and a list to make the list and to share that with with people. You know, to say, all right here is the bare bones of what to do next. And you're absolutely right. I did. I, I didn't necessarily do it before, but the very first thing I had to do after we really did that, uh, we put that article together was to, to look at, at my own, my own courses. Um, you know, and this came out on, oh gosh, it was, uh, I think it was Monday, the March 9th and wow, how things change. Right. Um, I, I went straight from working that up, in the morning with the, with the editorial staff, I went into work and went into a meeting of, you know, other teaching oriented faculty and people were saying, oh, you know, the schools that are closing around the quarter system, that's, yeah, our school is really resistant to closing for weather and things. I don't know that this is going to be us to a week later of like, all right, hi, happy spring break. And by the way, <laughs> here's the deal. So yeah, I have had to apply it. And yeah, as, as a list of things to go down and look at, um, I think it was, it was good. And I did get the chance to editorialize a little bit about that issue that many of us in the space also are having of like, well, let's not make this the, you know, online online class <laughs> for the referendum on that as many other thinkers have, and writers have, have been talking about in the meantime of like we're also yeah it, we want to acknowledge this is not what the good stuff looks like I, I think you said it well you gave six simple steps and I and you said it was around instructional continuity and we're not alone I actually just listened to our friends out of University of Central Florida Topcast had on 
kind of a reflection on March because March came fast and furious. And in the U.S., most uh, universities and colleges have a spring break or break a week off, uh, meaning faculty are probably playing catch up on grading and things like that. Students are away. A lot of our staff, professional staff, still stay on campus um, and had to make some quick decisions on open, close, who's going online, who's not. And going online, uh, and we said in a previous episode of InVinoFab, could be like emailing lecture notes and PowerPoints. And that is okay, folks. Like, Because your last point, I think, was critical was communicate. Like, talk, find out where you're going to communicate with your learners and what that's going to look like. And uh, that's the biggest and best piece of advice I've heard from yourself and other people in um, the online realm talking about being open and transparent and communicating like often and it's more than you normally would because people need to hear from you, the teacher, you, the university or whoever is like what's going on. Cause that's what the people just weren't aware of what's happening and what's changing so fast and rapidly we've seen. Yeah. 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 And I mean, lists, I guess, you know, another thing which I think probably more people know about me than not is that I, I really, really am such a compulsive list maker. I just, yeah. um, and and uh, I'll, I'll also share that um, I'm one of, one of the many individuals, particularly women, who've been uh, diagnosed or self-diagnosed with ADHD through their, through their kids um, and kind of grew up without an awareness of that. And so, you know, now kind of knowing what I know about this very real um, kind of difference and some and how some of us process the world, if we look at everything all at once and just kind of try to do what's in front of us, uh, we sort of <laughs> end up in this very scattered mode very, very quickly. And that's, you know, and emotionally that's, that's hard. And you add on to that, that very real cognitive issue. Many of us are, are having with the, you know, the barrage emotional and informational right now. It's, it's, it's quite a brew. So yeah, I, I, I mean, I will make a list when I make a, a dinner that I've made, you know, 200 times, I still kind of have to list that out. Um, and it's funny, you know, right now it's also giving me a little bit of nostalgia. This uh, way back when, um, when I, I had my, my first daughter, um, I, was a, I was staying home with her for a while and kind of, uh, I guess coping is the, is the right word. I mean, it was a very enjoyable time, but I also felt that sense of like, oh my gosh, I don't, there's so much, what do I even do next? And I, I hit on this technique of um, listing out uh, every day, like literally everything I would have to do, <laughs> which for a new mom with a, with a new baby at home, uh, it was things like eat, feed baby, change baby's diaper, <laughs> and then, you know, read chapter of you know, a book that I, for whatever class I was preparing. Um, drink water, feed baby. And I mean, my list would have, <laughs> would have a hundred things, but that also made me really realize like, okay, it's not just like, oh, all I wanted to do today was read this chapter and I didn't even wash my hair and what's wrong with me. It's like, no, you, you had 200 things to do <laughs> and you got through a lot of them. It made me feel good to be able to check off even the most basic things. So I guess maybe in a way I'm carrying a little of that through today too, of just, all right, 
maybe quote unquote, all you have to do is grade papers and read your email, but there's a lot to that and credit yourself, you know, and, and gain, if, if lists and lists simple or complex help us um, have see a way forward, then, then let's do it. Yeah, I, I would agree with you because things can be overwhelming. And you talking about your experience as, as, as a mom, I think of new moms, I think of current moms and dads and families. I think it's whatever's going to help you um, kind of organize and schedule yourselves because our, our lives normally have a set schedule and they have a routine and pattern. And if our patterns change to make our commutes just to an office up in an attic, uh, wherever we hide out in a tent in the backyard, um, to having school look different for children, to home and elder care, then you have to figure out, well, what's that new routine? And if it's making a list, if it's a whiteboard with a schedule, I've heard people talk about, um, I think that helps people figure out um, their new patterns and new ways of being, because it's not going to be I don't think any of this is normal, so I don't call it the new normal, but I do think it helps to get people into a different state of mind, of work, of childcare, of whatnot. And I, I can only imagine, um, never make this the example of remote work either, folks, because this is not what it looks like normally. So it's a tough time to balance all those. And whatever gets you through, I think it could be lists, it could be having a schedule or make an agreement with a partner to say, you have really loud conference calls and I have some at the same time. So can we flex our schedules a bit? Um, because those have been some interesting nuances. We've all kind of, um, I've had to hear people talk about and struggle with, and I don't know how, how that's been going on. Or if you have suggestions for folks um, thinking about childcare and patterns, um, how's it been at home for you? Cause I can only imagine what people have in the background. I've seen dogs, cats, kids, things flying through the airs on conference calls. It's been fun. So Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, there's the lighter side of it. You know, we, we have to laugh sometimes. But, uh, you know, I was corresponding recently with um, with a friend who who, does, who works in a um, – she's one of these amazing, you know, all things to all people, academic uh, staff at, uh, at a different university than my own. And I happen to know she also has two young school-aged kids at home. And her kids are, are they're fabulous or intense or high-energy kids. And I just, we were, you know, texting about something and I'm just going, whoa. But, you know, I can't, I can't complain about any difficulty. I mean, my youngest child is 14 right now. Uh, one is um, out of the house studying abroad, actually, right now. And another's an independent teenager. I'm like, Oh, I can't, you know, I don't have it hard. And she just said, girl, it is not a contest. It's not a misery contest. Everybody has it is, is struggling in one way or another. But that said, um, you know, where I'm at right now in, in my career, I mean, I, I really did. If you can even imagine that there was more hostility or less support for, for, for moms in particular, uh, I, I've, I've been through it. So I, you know, I, I am looking back and just going, this has got to be so difficult. And I think a lot of this, uh, I mean, we have a, a general cultural issue, especially in the United States cult, uh, context of where well, you can organize your way out of it and plan your way out of it. So I'm going to be real paradoxical here. And even though I'm a compulsive planner, um, and list maker, Let's not have any illusions about, you know, 
when you have a basic imbalance and some things that are just impossible, no list or system in the world, no self-motivation is, is going to fix that. So I do, I, what I want to see is more kind of leadership, especially in the, you know, academic and higher ed space where I'm at, really saying, all right, let's get real. This is not, you know, a couple of snow days in a row anymore. And I've kicked around, I probably won't do it, but I, you know, kicked around just starting even on Twitter saying, okay, what, let's be realistic here. Okay. Give me real numbers, actual numbers. If you have, let's say a three-year-old and a six-year-old at home, and you're expected now to probably homeschool them. Um, let's say you have a partner who's in an essential healthcare job and they're not here. How many hours a day do you think that you're going to have to answer the email, grade the papers, put the course online, keep your committee work going, which many institutions are still doing. Let's have numbers. And I expect we'll see a lot of negative numbers or impossible numbers. I mean, really, where is that supposed to come from? If you are, um, and I, I'm going to be, you know, it, it's usually not always uh, women who this, this falls to. In my own in my own family, I'll say I'm I'm the primary breadwinner, and I mean it's crazy to call it non traditional in this day and age, but it really is still very non traditional, where my partner is the primary parent, even with our kids being older. But but even so, that has not always been the case, and I can only boggle my my brain just melts when I think about how is this work going to get done. Yeah, you you bring up some great points and conversations we've had in the past just uh, with guests and ourselves. Patrice and I have talked about this a lot is the um, the labor, the unseen labor and unviewed. And it's um, people started listing. I saw five jobs and roles that people have had before on Twitter. And it was kind of like uh, chauffeur. I'm like grocery person. Like it's the organizing of things that either um, and I, and I'm very fortunate and you are too, that we work in roles and positions that, uh, we could still do from home and, um, we haven't lost our job. We haven't been furloughed, but in that we've also been expected to take on whether it's childcare, um, grocery shopping, however we can get groceries these days to uh, event planning, homeschooling, schedule organizing, and then house like distribution of, is everyone okay on top of a full-time career? And you said it right. Like, even if you are a breadwinner and that might be um, not as uh, common, but it is more common, I think in the U S these days, um, you're still taking on the brunt of the household duty and responsibilities. And I think women have just done it. And I think they were overworked. We don't have that much time in the day and we're, we're going to lose the, what we're doing really well and work if we're stretching ourselves so thin, which I think we often do. And you said it right. Like, I think capacity for that is going to bust. Or um, let's pretend that like online learning, we just don't throw everything online. We just don't throw all the same duties and tasks in this kind of world. Like, why are people having committee meetings? This is a question. I, What's priority here, people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, I get wanting to, to preserve people's important work and the projects that they, that they do care about. But... I, it it is really uh, it is it is strange and, and funny what we choose as as essential or non-essential and and yeah I mean a lot has been said about you know emotional labor um, and and emotional care work and I, I'm not I don't know that I can add anything to that other than to to affirm that too that it mm -hmm. is there's part of that as well that's another one of those kind of 
programs it runs or, or you know, whatever metaphor you want to use or pulls out of your, your energy bank. Um, and especially for those of us, I mean, just because you're, you're female or in my case, just because you're a psychologist mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you're just practiced at compartmentalizing and, 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 you know, doing good care work and then just toggling to something else. It, it doesn't mean that. And, and, um, I mean, I don't, I absolutely don't want to make it sound like it's, it's burdensome in any way. I'm really glad that I can be say a support to other faculty or, or commonly to my, like I'm mostly teaching graduate students online right now. And my gosh, the, the questions they have about their future are, are wrenching and I want to be there for them. And I try to be there for them as best as I can. Um, But then you turn back to your own, your own family and your own, you know, psyche and what happens to that? Yeah. And, and we kind of talked before um, you, you came up through academia uh, as traditional, like discipline of psychology. You went through the tenure track, you're fully tenured and that, process is not easy and some things um, had to be sacrificed to get to where you are I have no doubt um, are, are there things that you're looking back now because you're, you're having grad students ask you uh, like what's the future of the discipline where I will get work what does that look like are there things that you see changing or you hoped would change or things that you're giving advice that you're like this is wish what the advice I wish I had because I, th- I think you you sound like you're being a great support for them um, in these uncertain times so what what kind of pieces of nuggets of knowledge are you bestowing on your grad students as they ask you questions for support yeah well you know when it comes to things like you know the real nitty-gritty of like oh you know should I choose this track a PhD program and how many years and uh, I usually um, I will direct them towards a, a younger, a younger colleague because honestly, you know, I've worked myself into um, a, a, a definitely different niche. I mean, I, I am incredibly privileged to have had the opportunity to to um, go through the tenure process. Um, I, I work at a pretty traditional, you know, this pretty traditional academic department. It looks on the surface very mainstream, but in so many ways, my career really isn't. So I, I have to be mindful of, of that um, so that I can give good advice. And, and I've been so moved by reading, for example, this great book called The, the Graduate Student Mess. <laughs> it wasn't uplifting. It was actually pretty upsetting, but also cathartic to read to say, you know, I, I'm not crazy. I mean, I'm still kind of processing some of the experiences emotionally that I went through as a postdoc and as a grad student. I mean, really. And to say, you know, once again, maybe it wasn't all me. Maybe this was a crazy situation that we're just looking at now. Um, so I want to be very mindful of, like, one of the, the major issues. He's absolutely right in that book is not giving good advice. I mean, we could say, well, here's what I did, and it worked great. Well, you know, and that's a lot of the advice that I got. It was well-meaning, but it didn't. It wasn't. It uh, led me down some some real wasted energy paths. So that's one of the things they do. Um, I try to gently encourage authenticity, um, you know, just to really stay in touch. It's so easy to lose touch of, I mean, there's almost a blurring of boundaries that happens, you know, just because here's your mentor and they're so passionate about this topic and this is the one thing they want to study. So you take that on, but you have to check back in with yourself and say, what do you really want to do? And if you don't know, that's, that's okay as well. 
I think that we would be remiss as advisors right now if we did not talk about so-called, uh, well, that's, I, I, I like the term, but the, the term ALTAC, mm-hmm. you know. Um, For our listeners, that means alternative academics. So mm-hmm. another career path besides uh, the tenure track, essentially, yeah. going yeah. through as a professor. Yeah. And even if we're not able to give always good events, like, like I can say, hey, have you thought about instructional design as mm-hmm. a career path? Most of the time, my students will say, what's that? Which is amazing <laughs> that, that anybody in academia still says it. But, and I love to share with them that path. And that's something where I do feel like I can give at least some reasonably accurate information on, you know, what does this path entail? Uh, what are the ways you get there? What are some of the pluses and minuses of, of being in that, in that field? Even though I'm not in that field myself, I have a lot of contact with it. So I can do that. But I also want to really acknowledge, well, you know, here's some other areas. I want to normalize that and make that okay. Because that was definitely not okay to talk about when I was coming up um, without saying, oh, I have all this information. Because I think that part of the sort of dysfunctional early attempts to, to, to normalize that throughout academia, I mean, they took this, they were the clumsiest thing, you know, like, well, maybe you could go work in a museum. Well, <laughs> I have no. I, I think oh, museums are neat, and I bet you have to be really educated to go. In, but I don't know anything about that. Right. So I think I, I, I think you're right. Though you're you're saying you don't want to do a disservice by giving advice that you don't know on. And I I just think back to like a decade ago is when I started my PhD, and so much has even changed um, from like starting a PhD to now, and things will probably get weird after this uh, COVID times, but we don't know what's to say what things will look like. And if you're, you're asking your students to like learn more about themselves, I think that's a great piece of advice. Um, I heard a, a fun conversation with the writers of the book, Design Your Life. I think it's Burnett and whatnot. And they talked a bit about of that advice giving is should be asking them to ask more questions and do that self introspective. Like we're, we reflect back on what we've done and where we've come from and the advice can't be as good as it was for you because things have changed and time has changed. And I think you're right to say that um, there are many career paths that I was never introduced to because an academic that is advising you that's never been in any other domain or field or discipline or organization than higher ed doesn't know how to give that advice or fully, I guess. And that's kind of, I was like you, like, what do you mean? There's, there's something else besides tenure track. Yeah, there is. So mm-hmm. that's great to, that you're doing that. Right. And, and, you know, and in psychology, we, we are very fortunate, um, to, to have as, as well that they, there really are so many amazing uses of psychology. And, you know, while we always have to really with our undergraduate students say, well, okay, you don't have a bat- you don't walk from having a bachelor's degree in psychology to going and being, oh, a profiler at the FBI. That's, oh my gosh, no. You know, I can't have the NCIS job that I saw on TV. No, I can, but not with a bachelor's degree in in psychology. I mean, maybe, 
I mean, definitely. And I, and I, I had to qualify that. I do have one colleague who um, has a, a joint appointment at my institution who's, who's really, really smart. And she actually did work at the FBI and actually did research serial killers. So it's like, all right, you just blew all my whole schemas. But, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing we, we do have to say. But that said, it is a great entree into a lot of different fields. We, we traditionally also you have this sort of bifurcation. You have to kind of pick do you want to go down a clinical path um, or, or, or a more research path? But that said, we still, as a field, are very oriented around and pegged around this hyper-traditional, you know, the way you succeed, the way you're okay as a person and as a professional is to crank, you know, 50 different empirical articles that are all on a, a very narrowly focused topic. And, you know, I, I have no disrespect for that either, but there's, there's multiple ways to get there. And I actually, you know, one of my, uh, sort of an odd, oddball publication of mine, but one that I, I really was from the heart, absolutely one professional to the other was, uh, a little while back, I published something um, about instead of mentors, uh, seek fans. And uh, yeah, and that's just, I think, another important way to, to look at that in um, today, as opposed to this kind of older model of, of academic success is focusing on your work and what's amazing about it and connecting with people who love your work, not necessarily just with people who say, all right, I will tell you what to do. Right. You will be my mentee and I will, you know, lead you down this incredibly narrow little path. Or if not a path, it's like a ledge. It's like, oh, you stray too far this way or that way, you fall off and you're gone forever. I mean, that's, I, I mean, I find that mentality, frankly, kind of toxic. And although I tried to be really positive in that article, um, that's, that's what I, a change that I want to be a part of. I love that idea. And fans are those that would also lift you up, support you, cheer you on, find, you know, great things. Um, how did you ever get into psychology as a discipline or domain? Like what, what first got you in started? Speaking of which, uh, I always know, I don't know what piques people's passion and interest. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I think in some ways I, I was, I was born to do this. I mean, I have, I, I don't know. I'm also kind of a poor academic, <laughs> bad, bad academic model because I have, I do have a lot of diverse interests as you might know by my. That's uh, great. I think that's a promiscuous great model. list of, of interests. We need but, more of those. I think that's great. No, I think that's fantastic. Oh, but you know, something about this discipline has already spoken to me. Um, you know, I'll, I'll share another piece that I, I don't think was widely read, but it was it's my favorite thing I've written on my blog, which was about the first textbook I read in psychology. So, okay. uh, you know, flashback to, I think it was about about 14 years old. And I was, I was a classic seventies and eighties latchkey kid. I was, I was Pippi Longstocking at my house. Um, I was spending a lot of time at my house, kind of by myself, trying to find something to do. And, and my mom, I guess she was she was uh, going through a master's program in education. She uh, she later earned her PhD and um, very successful in her in in her own career in that way. But she had. Uh, she just, uh, I guess, had to take intro to psychology, and she had what was one of the first really new style uh, psychology textbooks. So there was this shift. We went from, you know, 
here's this very long, text-heavy, intentionally very dense book, too. This one tied into pop culture. It tied into art. It, it made all these connections between this emerging science of psychology and all this, you know, relatable stuff, social issues, the social changes that were going on at the time that were really, um, you know, deep and seismic. And I read that book over and over and over. Um, and just the elegance of, of how it was broken down. I mean, it was, it was traditionally organized in the way that textbooks still are today and are just one usually. So it talks about, you know, biological basis of behavior, and then it kind of goes subfield by subfield. So the same things might be talked about over and over, such as, you know, why people engage in deviant behavior or, um, you know, why we have problems and difficulties in our lives, but looked at through the lens of social psychology, looked at through the lens of cognitive psychology, which later, you know, uh, really began to grab me and so on. So that, you know, I had that intense engagement. I did kind of set it aside. When I went to college, I was, I was going to major in English. I was going to, you know, do something creative in that area or, you know, really return to the love of books. But then in college, I, I got to work with, well, um, Deborah Burke and Richard Lewis, in particular, two incredible professors. And uh, my college had this, the Pomona College had this amazing psychology program. And I learned that, you know, not only cognitive psychology, but the study of language in particular was part of the field. So I could engage this love of language and love of words and curiosity about memory in particular. And come at that through this, you know, come back at that through this lens of science, which I thought was so, um, so appealing in my, in my early experience with the field. And I switched into that and um, just about never looked back, just went straight into a PhD program after that and, and really have loved um, doing research, but now doing much more applied stuff. So that's how I got into it. But what a great story and what a great foundation for you to go be exposed to and say, oh, this really triggers me as, at a young age. I think that's great. Well, I know that you're a book nerd because you only have talked about like 17 books so far on the podcast, but um, is there anything that you're kind of reading or resonating with you? And it doesn't have to necessarily be a book, but I know you're reading books um, that you kind of want to share with us or one that maybe you read um, or heard. It could be a podcast. Um, it could be a video. Um, is there something that our listeners should check out that maybe is resonating with you these days? Wow. Well, um, I, I just finished the book. Um, actually a couple weeks ago, but I finished the book, uh, outlaw oceans. Okay. So <laughs> just as really well structured, um, nonfiction that spoke to me on a, you know, completely different topic. And I mean, that's what I love about really great nonfiction. It makes you, just look at some everyday issue and go, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Or just satisfying the, the curiosity that um, that we all have, uh, you know, driving down the beach and seeing, the, you know, one of those huge cargo ships and going, wow, what's what's the backstory on how that how that all works and how it comes together? Um, so that that was a good recent book. I'm reading right now, How to Hide an Empire, which okay. is yeah, it, it, it's also another like. I mean, ever since I was a kid, you'd read on the back of the cereal box, like, oh, mail in your box top to this. And, you know, of course, if you're in the U.S. territories or Guam, you have to do this other thing. I'm always like, what? What is, uh, what's that all about? So 
um, and learning a good dose of, of United States history along the way. So that's, that's a good one as well. Um, I mean, psych books about psychology written by either psychologists or non-psychologists that do a great job with the field um, is, is another thread. And, and I, I, uh, actually made myself do a list last uh, last summer, and I did a blog post on that of just like my my all time favorite books about psychology uh, for for lay audiences that that are really well written and get the science right and just you know ignite all that passion. So uh, I'll have to kick people over to to my master list there. Um, as That'd be great. Oh yeah, books about yeah. teaching and learning. I mean, I've always got a, a long list of those, and I, I'm almost. But right now, I'm like, oh no, getting back to that. Why haven't I read the ten different, you know, amazing books by my colleagues? I'll get to it. <laughs> so I have a few of those under underway as well. I love it. Um, I know that you're probably doing some things around the house. Uh, you mentioned like from cooking to other things. Uh, when you get to sit back and whether it's having a glass of wine or something else, what's a go-to beverage that you just want to chill out with the family now or uh, distant uh, socialize, as I say, with friends over video chats? Uh, what are you, what's, what's in your cup or what's filling your cup these days? Oh, what's, what's in the cup? Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I don't, I don't always kick back. I used to, I used to kick back with a, a glass of wine, but I think my, my tastes have changed a, a lot over the years. Um, I will say if, if it's, if it's better, if we're, if we're relaxing and having fun, I like to cut out the middleman and go with a, um, a straight up really nice aged Añejo tequila. Mm. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I love the Southwest and its culture and that's one of the great pieces of it. And I do have one little ritual too. If I, if I have been working hard and have put up a win of some kind, whether it's a really great talk or, uh, finally knocking off a segment of a, of a book chapter or something like that. Um, I will have a, a nice peaty scotch, something that, I love it. Burn, burn the house down, <laughs> <Petey> Scotch, <laughs> with some unpronounceable Scottish name. Excellent. That's the ritual. There's lots of those, so I don't blame you. That sounds delightful. Um, and then, as we think about, I think we're going to have some time to get some work done and figure out our own time. But I know that you're going to take some of this time to plan some of your next projects, and you already are. I don't know if you want to share kind of what's percolating for you or what's on the horizon for your work that you kind of want to give a teaser to for our listeners so they can get to know what's coming ahead in your work life research practice. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, um, you know, outside of a couple of academic type of manuscripts that I'm working on with my, with my wonderful team of research assistants who are, uh, working remotely to help me put things together. Um, kind of two, two big, two big things. Um, so I, I'm, I'm so, lucky that I was able to have a book project underway before, you know, it happened. I think that that has really given me something to look forward to and a great fun project to be, to work on. And I do try to, to, to write every day. That's, that's at least for a little bit of time that that's part of my kind of new, new routine. Um, so that's tentatively titled Remembering and Forgetting in the Age of Technology. So bringing together uh, my passion for sharing cognitive psychology and what we know about memory as a topic and how it relates to attention um, with some 
really uh, contemporary concerns and talking about some myths and some realities about how technology does influence human memory. Everything from kind of the smallest, you know, micro level, like the pings that happen all day and, and how do we how do we remember things um, to some surprising ways that technology promotes and can help memory to I'm hoping to in the book also get to really tackle some almost bigger philosophical issues of, of like now that we all live in a world where so many moments are recorded what does that do for our kind of memory for our life story and looking at that through that unique lens of a cognitive psychologist who knows that you know memories are not recordings of the outside world they're definitely these very actively constructed fluid changing things and um, so I, I, I like working on that and it's uh, my series editor is the incredible legend um, uh, James Lang. So to be able cool. to work with him on the book too is, is amazing. I love it. I cannot wait to read this book. I'm so excited. Um, we look forward to sharing with our listeners uh, where they can learn more about your work and connect to Minds Online and the new projects and ads. Uh, so we'll be sure to put a link to all your wealth of resources on your website. And we will also include some key blog posts that you've mentioned that uh, both getting started with psychology and that book list that maybe I'm going to have to pick up and add to my Kindle as well. So that's good. Uh, we won't get bored in this time. So thank you so much. Um, before we wrap up, I always ask, and this I asked this before any of this uh, put us into sheltering in place or in staying at home, but what's uh, one thing that's bringing you joy right now and making you smile, laugh, and enjoy life these days? Well, I'll say that um, music has really been uh, – surprisingly important to me as an anchor to my day and a way to kind of mark those, mark those points in routine now that our, our physical worlds have shrunk so much and time feels weird. And, and it's just so hard to, to establish, establish that. Um, you know, I have, I have uh, very ritualistic playlists, as you might imagine, a very ritualistic playlist uh, for writing, for kicking off different parts of my work day, uh, for sitting down with the with the family for dinner, and for winding down at the end of the night. And I mean, you know, in doing some of that emotional labor with with some of my students as well, I've even you know just said, "Hey, here's a song. <laughs> here's what. Here's something that." encapsulate something that I'm trying to say. So uh, that's been a surprising one, um, but also a really joyful one. What a fun way to like break up your day. I haven't thought about putting music into like I have music that I go to music and songs and playlists, but is there a song that you recommended to your students lately that we could take a listen maybe and put in? Oh gosh. Well, um, this may seem like an odd choice when you're trying to cheer somebody up, but there is uh, the, incomparable Tom Waits, who I think should have gotten a Nobel Prize first, but <laughs> um, I think his, so his song, uh, Come On Up To The House, uh, is one that can, can ground me and ties into, you know, the idea of home and, and I can't, physically bring anybody else up to my house right now, but um, in some virtual way, if I could encompass that and I mean, the song is, is also about kind of really commiserating with, but also putting into perspective um, the epic battles. We all feel like we fight every day and just saying that's, that's human. Again, it's, it's not, it's not you. It's, it's all of us and it's humanity. 
so I'll I'll uh, I'll throw that one out there if I have to pick. Oh, I think that's great. I have a a playlist I have on Spotify called "Where Corona Get Through This," so I'm going to add that to my playlist. So yes, okay. Good. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for taking time where time is weird now <laughs> out of your schedule. And we really appreciate just hearing about kind of things you're working on, you're thinking about, and I look forward to hearing more. So if you ever want to talk about future works and projects when next books come out, you're welcome to come back to the pod anytime. I'm sure Vito Fab community would love to hear from you again. So please do, do be sure to return. Oh, thank you so much. It's been so great to, to talk to you here today, Laura, and um, the this, this same to you. The, the best of luck, Anna, and if I could just send, send that strength to you um, as we do get through this, uh, I'd love to do that. So, yeah, thank you for putting this podcast together. I know that we all derive a lot of, of strength and, and laughs and, and joy and ideas from it. Thanks again, Michelle. I appreciate it. To catch the next episode, be sure to subscribe to InVinoFab wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InVinoFab and we'll always welcome comments and messages sent by tweet, private message, or email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. Cheers! Cheers!